I'm curious who you would say is your greatest encourager in life. Who's your greatest encourager? As I reflect about my life, uh, my friend and mentor, uh, Curtis Cook, who serves as the pastor of Hope Fellowship Church, our sending church in Porter Square, Cambridge. He's that encourager for me. I remember seven years ago, nervously preparing to plant this church, Beacon Community Church here in Belmont. Thousand thoughts and fears, worries, insecurities in my own heart as a person, as a pastor, preparing to plant a church with a team of others. And I remember in our weekly one-on-one meeting, him as a coach and a mentor just encouraging me with these words. Not earth-shattering, not flashy, not particularly profound, but true. He says, Dane, church planting is primarily about perseverance. It's about staying the course. You will want to quit at times. People will leave your church, some on good terms, and it will be painful. Some on not so good terms, and it will be painful. The people that you reach out to and engage with the gospel will resist you. So discouragement will come. You will want to quit. You want to leave and and find greener pastures elsewhere. Church planting is primarily about perseverance. And then he said this, Dane, my best advice to you is to work hard and don't give up. Work hard and don't give up. Not flashy, not particularly profound. Work hard and don't give up. The words my parents taught me as a young boy. In whatever you do, work hard and don't give up. This morning we see this persevering mentality in church planting, in gospel ministry, reflected in the book of Acts, in the lives and ministries of Paul and Barnabas. And so let's turn there together in our Bibles to Acts chapter 14. In the Bibles we've provided for you here, if you're in in person, you can find that on page 923. Acts chapter 14, page 923. Uh, This morning we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts entitled Church on Mission. Church on Mission. We're about at the halfway point uh, of Acts. So I'll read Acts 14, verses 1 through 18. We'll have the, the text also projected on the screen. So Luke, the author of Acts, tells us, chapter 14, verse 1, Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbeliever, unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. 
And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. The central idea of this passage is persevere in gospel ministry. Persevere in gospel ministry. The passage reveals Paul and Barnabas persevering in gospel ministry. And so we'll organize our time in this passage by highlighting two obstacles through which Paul and Barnabas persevere. What were those two obstacles? We'll unpack the first and then the second. Here's the first. We see Paul and Barnabas persevere through mistreatment. They persevere through mistreatment. This is reflected in verses 1 through 8. So we see in verse 1, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. Now let me rewind to what our church planting resident Scott Cope preached on last week. He walked us through Paul's ministry in Pisidian Antioch, which is modern day central Turkey. Paul preaches there. He's ultimately chased out. There's a divided response. Some believe, some reject. They stir up the crowds and he is sent out. They travel 90 miles southwest to a different city, Iconium. That's where we pick up here in Acts 14. Paul's been chased out of one city after preaching the gospel on to the next, and the next is Iconium. And as was his practice, he entered the synagogue first to preach to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. That is, Gentiles who were sympathetic to Judaism without becoming full converts, obeying all the ritualistic law, becoming circumcised and the like. So they, they heard the Hebrew scriptures, these Gentiles. They were sympathetic. They gravitated to them, but they weren't full Jewish converts. And so Paul would go there as a base and he would preach Christ from the Hebrew scriptures as the fulfillment. So that was his MO. When he went into various towns, he would see if there's a synagogue first and he would preach Christ from the Old Testament to persuade people, to prove that Christ is in fact the foretold Messiah, the fulfillment of those very scriptures that they knew so well. And evidently he spoke powerfully Luke tells us he spoke in such a way that many believed. Jews and Greeks believed in Christ. 
The, the idea here is Paul spoke with power, Holy Spirit empowerment. That theme verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. You will receive power from on high, the Holy Spirit. He spoke in such a way, he spoke with such power given by the Holy Spirit. What seems to be an encouraging start turns sour when some resistant Jews stir up the crowds against Paul and Barnabas. We see this in verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned, that is to embitter their minds against the brothers. Here we see a repeat of what Scott preached last week. There's a mixed response. Some believe, some disbelieve. Those who disbelieve stir up others, create a crowd, a hostile crowd against Paul and Barnabas. They're no stranger to suffering. This is what they experience, and we'll see it intensify as we go throughout the rest of the book of Acts. This mistreatment of Paul is actually a fulfillment of the Lord Jesus' words, his calling over Paul's life when he's converted in Acts chapter 9. What does Jesus declare to Ananias, who's the one who shepherds Paul in the early days when he's struck with blindness after seeing the Lord? Jesus says to Ananias, take Saul, also known as Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Part and parcel of Paul's ministry was a ministry of suffering. His ministry took a cruciform shape. It followed the pattern of the Lord that he preached. Jesus Christ who likewise suffered. So that's the, that's the, the pattern of his ministry. He and Barnabas and others knew what it was to suffer for the sake of the gospel. What unfolds in Paul's ministry, this mistreatment that we see here is all according to plan. There's a good and sovereign God orchestrating it all, accomplishing his good purposes through Paul's pain. And that's how it always is as believers suffer for the sake of the gospel, gospel ministry. God has a purpose in his people's pain to advance the gospel to advance the gospel. Well, how do Paul and Barnabas respond to this fierce obstacle in their ministry? It's surprising what we read next. They stir up, these unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers. You would think the next move would be, and so they left. But look, what do we see in verse three? And so they remained for a long time. What do they do? They persevere. They dig their heels in and they continue the gospel ministry. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They persevere in spite of opposition. They dig in, they don't collapse under the pressure of persecution. They stayed and continued this critically important work. I receive a weekly email update from a friend who supports and prays for lots of cross-cultural ministry workers. This week, I was both challenged and encouraged by an update 
from a Ukrainian pastor. I'd like to read that update for you. Hello, my dear brother. Many of you have reached out and asked how we are doing in Ukraine with troops gathered on the border. Thank you so much for your care and prayer. Although the situation is tense, we are not controlled by fear. We know that the Son is our sovereign King who reigns over the spiritual and physical world. I was reminded after reading Daniel 6 a few days ago that God is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall never end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. We also know we need to be wise. So we are watching the situation closely and have made contingency plans for various scenarios. Each member of our team plans to remain in Ukraine and continue ministry at this time. Thank you for joining us in prayer. Perseverance in the face of opposition. And if you would just, just, just bow with me and let's just pray for this dear pastor and others like him and congregation like his in Ukraine. Heavenly Father, we pray for brothers and sisters in Ukraine who are worshiping, have already worshiped this morning in the midst of fear and anxiety and what ifs all around. We pray that you would protect them. We pray for their peace. We pray for their ongoing proclamation of the gospel, that they would persevere faithfully. Thank you for the witness of this dear brother. Encourage him. Have your way. Lord, we know that the hearts of kings and presidents are in your hand. You guide them as you do rivers. We pray for these leaders. I pray for President Putin, whose Heart is in your hands, O oh Lord, to do justice, to do what is right, that the people in Ukraine and in Russia may live peaceable, godly lives in this present age, that the gospel may continue to go forward. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Perseverance in the face of opposition. Well, as we saw last week with Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch, there's a mixed response, isn't there? Verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Some in Iconia believe, some disbelieve. Some receive Christ, some reject Christ. Some respond with joyful compliance and others with willful defiance. It's a mixed response. As it always and often is when we share the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we should, we should expect a mixed response to greater or lesser degree. Not always going to be positive, typically not always going to be negative. It's, it's often a, a mixed response. This is expectation management for evangelism. In our work of sharing the gospel, some will receive Christ, some will reject Christ. Some will believe, some will disbelieve. Some will accept his word with joyful compliance, others with willful defiance. That's the expectation. May we continue persevering, 
sharing, scattering seed. Well, the hostility against Paul and Barnabas intensifies in verse 5, doesn't it? An attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. But they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. So these influential Jews and Gentiles ratchet up the opposition by putting a plan together to stone them. Luke uses this word to mistreat them, which is the same verb that he uses when Jesus predicts what will happen to him in Jerusalem. As he's walking the road to Jerusalem with his disciples, Jesus says this, Luke 18, taking the 12, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and shamefully treated. Same verb as in here, Acts chapter 14. Shamefully treated, mistreated, harmed. Same verb. He will be spat upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Here Luke is linking the suffering of Paul with the suffering of Jesus, and it is strategic, friends. It is instructive for us because to follow Christ is to suffer. And don't let anybody sell you a Christianity different than that. To follow Christ is to experience opposition, to suffer. It is not a cakewalk. We should expect opposition and hostility at times. Jesus says, John 15, verse 20, remember what I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul later says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. So Luke is linking the suffering of Paul with the suffering of Jesus for a reason. That's for, that is so for every Christian. We, followed a, we follow a crucified Savior and so then it follows as we walk with him, we will suffer at times. But be not discouraged. Because he is there sympathizing with us in the midst of the suffering. He is identifying with us in the midst of the suffering. We have solidarity with him, drawn into intimacy with him as we suffer. We're not left adrift. We're not left alone. He's there with us. And the greatest news is the hope we have as we suffer. Because Christ suffered but overcame suffering through his resurrection, all who believe in him will too overcome that suffering in him. By union with him, we too have the greatest hope, resurrection to new life. No matter what they do to this physical body, they cannot touch our souls. We are with Christ. We have solidarity with him in the midst of our suffering for the gospel and hope no matter what we face in this life. Notice after staying in Iconium, enduring much opposition, there came a time when God provided a way out. God, in this case, did provide a way of escape. Martyrdom is not always his plan. At times it is, but in some cases there's an escape. So verse 6, they learned of the scheme to stone Paul and Barnabas. They fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia. Martyrdom wasn't the plan. God had more work for Paul and Barnabas to do. He had a purpose for the escape. What was it? Verses 6 and 7. They fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So what was the purpose of the escape route? 
further ministry, further proclamation in others, other areas that needed the gospel. So God provided a way in his sovereignty, and they continued to persevere in gospel ministry. So first, we see perseverance through mistreatment. Secondly, finally, we see perseverance through misunderstanding. Perseverance through misunderstanding. Luke spells this out in verses 8 through 18. They travel south to Asia Minor, modern-day central Turkey, to the towns of Lystra and Derbe. And here's what unfolds there. At Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So Lystra, from what we know, is predominantly Gentile territory. A predominantly Gentile town evidently did not have a synagogue. So Paul has a little different strategy of doing ministry there. As he's preaching there, likely in a marketplace, kind of a common thoroughfare or a gathering point, he sees a man who was crippled from birth. And the man is tracking with Paul's teaching, isn't he? he he's following Paul. He's hearing him. And Paul has spiritual discernment, sees that the man has faith to be made well, says to him, looks intently at him, stand up. And this guy springs up instantaneously. Tendons, muscles, never that had been used, atrophied, suddenly are strengthened. And the guy shoots up and he starts praising, walking. This was a man that likely they knew. He was crippled from birth. What did people do? There's no social security benefit for people in that day. You panhandled for your daily bread. This man would have panhandled all of his life in that open marketplace. A lot of people knew him. Like the man in Acts chapter 3 that Peter and John heal. It becomes a public event. The crowds gather. They know this man. They see the transformation and people gather. What we see here in this man is genuine faith. Genuine faith to be made well. And if you have the ESV Bible, you see a, a note down, a footnote, made well, the same word is to be saved. We see in the scriptures that faith is the condition whereby people are made well physically and spiritually. Your faith has saved you, says Jesus to the bleeding woman in Luke chapter 8. Your faith has made you well. There's some genuine ambiguity there. It, it, it often speaks of the same reality. Faith is the condition whereby physical and spiritual restoration takes place. And based on his listening ears to Paul preach the gospel, this man wasn't just made well physically, he was made well spiritually. Tracked with the gospel, had faith in Christ, not just for physical healing, but for spiritual healing as well. His faith has made him well. He springs to his feet, praising. And here's the response of the villagers, the folks there who knew this man after they witnessed this miracle. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Two key gods in the Greek pantheon Zeus, the chief, the king of the Greek gods, and Hermes, the patron god of the herald or the messenger, who was primarily speaking. It was Paul, so they think he's Hermes, the messenger. 
And Barnabas, they think, is Zeus. They are enthralled with what has happened here, attributing it to their pagan Greek gods. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was outside, right at the entrance of the city, Zeus was who protected them, or so they thought, so they had a temple right there at the city gate for protection of, of, of the town, of the city. He prepares oxen and garlands, some honorary sacrifices to what they believe is the manifestation of Zeus and Hermes in their midst. Paul and Barnabas are horrified by this idolatrous response. Verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. They rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? You see two faithful men, Paul and Barnabas, absolutely brokenhearted over this idolatry. They do this Jewish cultural symbol of grief and mental anguish. They tear their clothes, which may or may not have been lost on the, the Greeks there. It was, it was a Jewish cultural symbol of, of grief and desperation. They tear their, their clothes and they go out and they plead with people in the streets not to do this idolatry. I wonder, how do we respond to the idolatry all around us? There's two ways you can respond to that. With disgust or with a broken heart. How do we respond to the people given over to things that are vain and empty as we will see here? These vain things that they're worshiping, these empty, hollow things that leave people desperate. Idolatry always overpromises and always underdelivers. It leaves us empty. And yet we keep coming back to it again and again. As we see this in our culture, it ought to cause our hearts to grieve, to be desperately moving outward, to invite people to something that is right and true and whole. Paul and Barnabas are shattered over this misunderstanding of the gospel. And they go out and they plead with people to turn. They say in verse 15, we also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Notice the exchange he's offering. Hey, these things that you're worshiping, these, these, these gods are vain. They're empty and hollow. Come and look to the one true God, the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. The vanity of idolatry, the emptiness of idolatry. The psalmist speaks of it. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. You see, we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. That, that's what we see here. Empty, hollow. Have you come to grips with what you worship in this life? What is it in your life that if taken away from you would leave you devastated? That's just a diagnostic question to identify idols. 
What is it in your life that competes with Christ for your affections? And how is it over-promising and under-delivering, leaving you empty every time you return to that broken cistern, that empty well? It, it leaves us thirsty and parched every time. There is a living God who created all that is, including you, and knows how you're wired and alone knows how to satisfy you. Paul starts this sermon with creation. When he speaks to Jews, he goes back to Abraham as his base. But here, these people don't know who Abraham is, so they go, he, they, they go back to creation. That's where Paul and Barnabas go. They go to creation because they know that these people perceive some of his goodness in creation. And that's where Paul goes. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God has provided a witness to all people. His general revelation in what has been made, the heavens declare the, the glory of God. Day by day, they pour forth speech of God's goodness, Psalm 19. All that is created reflects God's glory so that people are without excuse, Romans chapter 1. So Paul's saying to these people given over to idolatry, misunderstanding who Paul is, he says, friends, there is a living God who created you, who's been good to you, who has sent you rain in due seasons, who's provided you food, who has satisfied your heart with good things. God is good to all he's made, to the just and the unjust. This is what is called common grace, common grace. He's good. Matthew chapter 5, he sends rain on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. He provides rain. The sun rises, it warms people. He is good. This is common grace. But what is needed for people to find their way into a relationship with God is special grace, saving grace through the preached word of Christ. Common grace provides a platform for, for people to hear the specificity of special grace. And so Paul preaches. And with the utmost effort, he's barely able to deter the people from their idolatry. Notice how it ends in verse 18. You're, you're left with this feeling of exasperation and, and exhaustion on behalf of Paul, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. You can see Paul running frantically as people were about to sacrifice oxen and throw down garlands as a symbol of honor. Paul was out there pleading with people, preaching Christ, pointing people to the living God in the midst of their idolatry. He's broken over this misunderstanding. It is indeed an obstacle, a different one than the mistreatment we saw earlier. This is Another kind of obstacle that he perseveres through, the obstacle of misunderstanding. This is the nature of ministry. We're called to persevere by God's grace through any and every obstacle, and there will be many of them. We just see two here, mistreatment and misunderstanding. There's a litany of others that we need to be prepared for and to trust God's grace to move us through. He is faithful. I shared at the start of the sermon the encouraging words of my mentor, Curtis, who shared with me seven years ago, work hard in church planning and don't give up. It's interesting that 
The Apostle Paul would later write his own words of encouragement to the people that he was investing in to do gospel ministry. Hear these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the end of the letter. Notice how Paul encourages people to persevere as he did throughout his whole ministry. Notice what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. Friends, persevere, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that whatever you do in his name will never be in vain. Keep your eyes on him. Work hard and don't give up. By God's grace, you will glorify him and he will produce his appointed fruit in time. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise to work as your people work. God, help us to trust you in the midst of opposition, be it mistreatment or misunderstanding or any other obstacle. Lord, give us grace. Guard our hearts from wanting immediate microwaved results. God, help us to be okay with the slow cooking results that come in your time. To be faithful, to continue to scatter seed. Father, thank you that you've called each one of us to engage in the work of gospel ministry. Empower us, give us opportunity, and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.